Welcome to the Directors UK podcast. This episode comes from our member event with the amazing Ryan Johnson as he discussed his latest film, Glass Onion, A Knives Out Mystery. Ryan spoke to fellow director Edgar Wright about the complexities of the shoot, filming during Covid, playing Mafia and, of course, about Hercule Poirot. Just a heads up that there are some spoilers for the film, so if you haven't seen it, watch it on Netflix first. We hope you enjoy. It's funny, like one of the things that I think I had talked to you about in the time that we'd known each other before you even made Knives Out, I think your love of whodunits had come up. And, um, and there's one particular film, which we'll get to in a second, that you're probably the only other person until recently who I've met, who I've met that ever knew that film. It's like, oh, you're the other, other person who's seen that film. But since we're in the UK, talk about your love for whodunits and, of course, the queen of whodunits, uh, Agatha Christie. Yeah, I mean, um, so, and again, man, thank you for doing this. Of course. And I've been kind, of, been kind of a lifelong whodunit fan, and um, ever since I was a kid, uh, I've, I've all, my entire life I've spent reading Agatha Christie's books. But with these movies specifically, it, it, it also reaches back to the adaptations of her books that were filmed when I was growing up. Um, the Peter Ustinov as Poirot movies, so Death on the Nile, Evil Under the Sun in particular for this. Um, the, the Hourly Dong is a call back to the noonday gun and evil under the sun and uh uh and last of sheila which i think is probably the movie that you're that you're referencing which more and more people have seen but i'll always beat the drum for the last of sheila um i'm sure a lot of you probably are familiar with it but it's i don't know i mean it's actually it's difficult to get hold in this country i don't think there's actually like it's actually not streaming and it's not on a, a uk DVD. Oh, really? Has anybody seen The Last of Sheila, that movie? All right, so The Last of Sheila is... Written uh, by? Co-written by Stephen Sondheim and Anthony Perkins. And it's a... I like it. There's always a little ooh that comes from a crowd when you save those credits. Um, and uh, it's a fantastic 70s whodunit um, about a uh, about a Hollywood producer uh, and who... Um, sends out invitations to invite all his friends to a murder mystery party on his yacht in the Mediterranean. This sounds very familiar. Um, but that's, I promise that's all I steal from it. Um, and it's Diane Cannon, Richard Benjamin, Ian McShane, Ian McShane young, hot Ian McShane, James Coburn, James uh, Mason, Coburn, James Mason, Paul the Princess. Uh, no, who's no, no, it's a uh, Raquel Welsh. No, who's Who the other a, one? Isn't it? Uh, uh yeah. Hmm. Sorry. Oh, as the wife, as 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 Benjamin's wife. I yeah. Forget. Is that the actress? I don't know. Yeah. There's no Wi-Fi down here, so we can't search it. <laughs> um, here's the toughest question I'm going to ask you tonight. Um, who is the best Poirot? Is it Finney? Is it Yusinov? Or is it John Suchet? I mean, Bill, uh, I, Patton Oswald wants to punch me in the face every time I give this answer, but for me, it's absolutely Ustinov. I love Peter Ustinov's Poirot. Um, I think that he is, and he hit the sweet spot in Death on the Nile. He goes a little goofy in Evil Under the Sun, but Death on the Nile, he hits the sweet spot of what is essentially funny about that character and slightly clownish while still grounded. Um, I mean, I love all of all of those, but to me, I, I love how funny Ustinov is in that part. I don't know if you ever saw these, but another thing I'm sure people of a certain age in this crowd, the other big one for me growing up was Miss Marple. Sure. Yeah. With Joan Hickson, yeah. which was, yeah. I think the kind of seem always seemed like as a kid watching it, like, Oh, there's this show with an old lady in the lead. How gory and nasty can it get? Well, quite gory and quite nasty. <laughs> and so it'd be that thing that I think my parents would let me watch it. And then somebody be strangled on a clothesline and be like, Oh, this is pretty hardcore. <laughs> But did you ever see that show? Was that did no, that play I never in the US? Saw that. No, uh uh-uh, uh-uh. It's actually really good. Yeah. She was like the sort of the, the Miss Marple of my youth. Yeah. But let's you know, so with all that in mind, I mean what's amazing to me as I, I, I I'm trying to remember when you first told me about this because what's interesting about this movie as well, unlike the first one, is like two things is like A it's 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 a triumph to be shot in lockdown. It also, maybe because it's in lockdown and you're in like a resort in Greece, it seems like you're having too much fun. <laughs> Would that be correct? Yeah. Yeah. We, yeah, we're having too much fun. Definitely. But the, um, 
Yeah, I wrote it during uh, in 2020. I wrote it when I was sitting at home during lockdown, and um, it was it was a bit of a um, I wrung my hands a little bit about whether to include the pandemic in the script. It, and it kind of for me, it kind of came down to uh, you know a big part of the motivating factor. We talked about Agatha Christie, but a big part of the motivation for making these movies was. Um, all of or most of the whodunits that I grew up loving were were period pieces, and um, you know, living in America, they're usually set, um, you know, in in the UK or in some nostalgic, even hazy version of 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 you know of England that maybe never even existed. They were all they all New England, <laughs> exactly New England, the newish England. So for me, the whodunit, which is oddly as a genre, uniquely formulated to be able to engage with the present moment, I think. Because you think about the ingredients of a whodunit, you think about building kind of a, uh, building a unique structure of suspects who uh, who all are completely distinct from each other, and yet there's a power structure within them, and um, there's, there's someone at the top. You're basically building a little microcosm of society by necessity when you put together a whodunit. Um, it's a fantastic tool for for actually examining or you know echoing back and forth with society and it hadn't been used for that for a long while it had been kind of this timeless quaint sort of uh, slightly dusty genre for a bit so the notion of taking this who done a genre and using it for throwing timelessness out the window and just saying now we're going to set it right here and now. And so with those as the marching orders, including the one massive event that all of us have gone through right here and now seems, you know, seemed apropos. Well, it, it is like an update. I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to say I'm the biggest Agatha Christie expert, but what, from what I understand, was she the wife of an ambassador or she certainly, or she traveled the world. And so she, well, her to- second, yeah, her, her second husband was a, uh, archeologist. Right. Yeah. So she was at a lot of kind of international dinners. So there is that thing with those old books, um, that out of the time, there is a, like similar to this, a sort of guess who, yeah. like that they're clearly based on figures of the time. And I think, uh, Murder on Orient Express has a sort of Lindbergh kind of... Yeah, it starts with like the Lindbergh kind of a bit. And she would always pull from current events. The other thing she did, though, was she would engage... You know, it was a lot of stuff about, um, you know, about the role of, of young women in society. And when, you know, the, the uh, young women smoking and just the, you know, the... the, the, uh, the um, the culture gap between the, you know, the generation gap plays like a big part in her uh, books. But also, I mean, even even down to, you know, Hastings, who was kind of her Watson, who was introduced in The Mysterious Affair at Styles, the first Poirot novel. Um, Hastings in that book is back from the Western Front with a war wound. And she wrote that book in 1916. I mean, she was always writing exactly to her moment, you know. With this one, maybe even more so than Knives Out, I feel like you are kind of like pulling from sort of uh, specific, an amalgam of different celebrities and and public figures. I mean, you know, without giving too much away, I don't want to spoil it for people who watch this later, but I do find it funny that your movie is coming out and a certain Elon Musk is having a very public meltdown. (laughs) It seems like he's doing publicity for the movie. Yeah, I don't know what Netflix paid to get this <laughs> viral publicity, but it was worth every penny. Yeah, I mean it, that must be a, a fun aspect to it because you do watch, you know, even just in the opening sequence, you're trying to sort of figure out who are these people based on, or even if it's more than one person, there are certain like it sort of becomes like a blind item in a gossip column of trying to figure out who exactly this is. Some more obvious than others. Yeah, it's kind of, but it's it's also kind of a species. Also, keep in mind that I wrote this in 2020, which seems like ages ago now, and the 2020 crop of. Um, douchebag would-be geniuses who reveal themselves to idiots was slightly different than the 2022 crop of them. So, um, but also I, I found but when the 2020 people are still with us, they're all still around, <laughs> they're all still here. Um, but I, I also, I found when writing it, the instant I started thinking too specifically about any of these people, not just whatever, you know, uh, any of the tech giants, but also like writing the Duke character. I started trying to watch some of these YouTube, like, you know, uh, influencer, like, you know, uh, 
whoever they are, like the man, I don't even want to say the names out loud. It's like casting a bad spell to say yeah. them out loud. Um, but, uh, say it three times and they'll appear. And they'll appear, God forbid. Um, but first of all, those videos are just phenomenally boring, but also it, it just got so uninteresting the instant it became about any specific person. So with the Miles Braun character, it, it, it was much more interesting to think about the place of these people generally in society and also just the thing that I think is probably fairly universal but I can relate to just as an American of the, sort of the, the, the odd, bizarre thing we have deep inside ourselves to mistake wealth for competence and the odd tension that we have with these people of both wanting to quote tweet them and shit on them and also – kind of having like a secret thing inside where we still kind of want them to be Willy Wonka, I think. And so oh. that odd kind of tension, I think. Yes, you know? they're sort of acolytes that, you know, the reply guys are genuinely terrifying. It's like a terrifying <laughs> yeah. Cult. yeah. I mean, that's what I like about this is that you get to kind of, within the structure of it, you get to do the origin of this guy like 20 years ago yeah. and to see this kind of like nobody hedge fan manager sort of guy just kind of then, then you know, fail his way to the top. <laughs> Just dress like Tom Cruise in Magnolia and (laughs) straight to the top, man. Yeah. I mean, it's a real gift, this, like, I know what you're going to, once you've got the third one, they're like sort of, I mean, it's a a Knives Out mystery, but presumably the third one is going to be named after a song as well. So the the song whodunits. But what I love about it is that it's great, is that you have a franchise where, unlike most franchises, you don't have to, there's not so much machinery to service in the, Benoit Blanc is the only character who moves over. And that's a a joy because I think what happens with a lot of the franchises is there's too many characters to sort of keep up with. And I mean, it's, it's, that's a, a, I mean, you must have known that when you were doing the first one. And I'm sure thinking about this one, that nobody from the first one is going to come back apart from Daniel. Completely, yeah. It was always the notion to do them like Christie's books where there are whole new rides each time. And even with Daniel's character, and it's it feels it's really nice to have a partner in Daniel who's on the same page as this. The last thing I want to do is start building out a backstory or a mythology of, of Benoit Blanc, of his character. To me, it's very fun to get little glimpses of him, but I think mistaking the detective for the protagonist in any of these movies is kind of a is kind of a trap as a writer you know it it um the protagonist like in the first movie was anna and this movie it's it's janelle's character and it it's needs to be somebody who actually has skin in the game the detective kind of operates outside the realm of 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 the case and that ultimately these movies are not about benoit blanc they're about they're mystery movies they're about the mystery and uh blanc is only truly interesting in them insofar as is he he's engaging with the with the crime to solve it you know but that's what's so great about it is that you within that there are certain things you have to have and who done it but also structurally the two films are very different mm-hmm. and that's kind of a real joy because you know you, people might come into it having a perception after knives out what it's going to be and you're having fun wrong footing them all the way through which again i throw back to the christie i mean i think there's there's kind of a perception sometimes a misperception of her work that she repeated herself and you know the body in the library and the butler did it and blah 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 the reality is that's anyone just the board game that's just the clue got, that's just clue and, god damn uh, clue. oh my god uh yeah um but, in the uk we call it cluedo oh i do indeed what does that mean what does cluedo where's the dough come the film from clue explain it to clue me over here as well which is weird you would think they would just retitle it cluedo that's so bizarre um there's a lot of things in this world I don't understand. Uh, Clue is not as, am I right in saying this? Clue is not as big a deal in the UK as it is in the US. I have no idea. You got to tell would me. You, yeah. you agree You with mean that? the movie? The movie. Yeah. The board game. I think the yeah. movie is kind of cult status in the US. Yeah. It's not like a huge popular, but it's it does have some of the greatest comic actors like of that generation. And it's oh, kind yeah. of a little miracle, yeah. But I would think anyone who, like Benoit Blanc, who makes their living off of solving crimes, would be very pissed off that most people know it through this stupid board game. <laughs> they reference <laughs> quite, it, don't they? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what were we talking about? Uh, well, I mean, so talk about when you're coming up with the idea. I mean, oh, throws it back to Christy. Yeah, so Christy was – sorry um, – 
I finished the thought. Christy, anyone who knows her work knows, was taking wild new swings um, with every single book, and was also mixing genres. Um, I mean, and you know, uh, and then there were none. Is basically like a proto slasher movie in a way. And uh, Endless Night is a gothic romance, and she was. Uh, um, the ABC Murders is a straight up serial killer thriller. I mean, it, it's uh, she was encasing other genres within. The Who Done It, and really, she took some wild swings. Yeah. So, I mean, talk about in terms of uh, when you're writing this, uh, you're sitting there in COVID and thinking, like, uh, oh, Greece sounds fun. Is that how it worked? Yeah, a little bit fading Greece. Let's see if this works. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yes, yes, and uh, and also all the stuff we've been talking about. Just, I, I think audiences with uh, film series have been. They, I, I could see how the expectation would be it's a continuation of the first. And so to put a big, obvious flag up front that this is a whole different deal. And so just as simple as trading the browns of autumn in New England for the blue and yellows of, of summer in Greece. Um, talk about just making it practically because you shot in Greece and then also the studio was in Belgrade. Mm-hmm. So how did um, and what was the split? Did you do the exterior stuff first? Yeah, we started with Greece, um, and it was basically half and half: half the shoot in Greece, half in Belgrade. Um, and we were shooting, you know, in twenty one. It was during COVID, like right when the um, Delta spike was happening, so the numbers were really bad. So, um, uh, but we managed to, yeah, we managed to keep everybody safe. Um, so yeah, we were in Porto Heli, which is on the mainland in Greece, and um, it, it was, I mean, it was Greece, man. It was pretty great, and it was, yeah. It's rare, though, to have, like, I mean, I'm sure some of the people in the audience shot during the pandemic where you have to keep in a bubble, yeah. and I guess it helps that the fact that the, the, the characters in the movie are sort of in a bubble as well. Yeah, and also that we were... You know, we had these movies, we cast movie stars who are all used to carrying their own films and they have to come together and truly function as an ensemble in order for the movie to work. And we, we, I've gotten very lucky with both casts that they've both of these casts have been that that hasn't felt like working against the grain of the wood. That's felt very all of them have embraced that as the assignment. But I think that it just helps that we all kind of hung out together on the weekends, you know, and especially once we got to Belgrade and we were all locked in a hotel together, um, we would take over the rooftop bar and just get together and get drunk and play mafia on the weekends, play <laughs> werewolf as people call it. Yeah. Who was the best mafia player? Uh, Kate and, uh, Leslie were very intense about the rules. They took it very seriously. Um, Dave Bautista was the worst player. He was just like, he had, he was, and then Daniel was the least interested player. He just wanted to get, <laughs> wanted to get drunk and hang out, which is honestly probably the, probably the way to actually play the game. He seems like he's having a lot of fun in these movies. I mean, I, I, I've, I've only because you know you see sometimes that he's his relationship with doing the Bond sometimes is, feels a bit tortured. I mean, he's he's said it said it himself, but he feels like he's having such a blast, and it's sort of a rare thing for somebody to walk off one franchise and then you know straight into another continuing one, which. Yeah. You know, I don't know how many you want to write, but it seems like he could do it for a long time, that character, and you just yeah. want to see him. It, what I liked about it is you get to know Benoit a lot more in this movie, yeah. which is unusual in the sense of in the kind of Poirot films, it's not like you necessarily get to know a lot about the character from movie to movie. Right, right, right. He's, I mean, he's having a blast in these movies. We have a lot of fun making these. And I mean, by we, I mean me and him. I mean, the whole cast does, but the whole reason we're continuing to make these is just... Um, yeah, man, I think we, I think we have a really good time. And I think he, I don't want to speak for him. I think he had, despite like all the headlines and all that stuff, I think he really did um, have the time of his life doing Bond. But with this, the fact that he gets I to think do the Paul quote is don't in- interview an actor on the last day of the shoot. I think that's probably <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> or do if you want some clickbait headline, yes. maybe that's the actual pull quote. Um, yeah, and uh, but I, I I can say I mean he just absolutely loved kind of getting goofy with this part and digging into it and um, and also obviously I mean you guys you guys know it's it's uh, um, uh, you know what looks 
effortless on the screen takes a tremendous amount of preparation and work. He really works his ass off on this role and um, puts a lot of thought and prep into it. So, um, and uh, really tries to make it great. So yeah, yeah, he's, man, he's having, he's having a good time. Well, it's funny you say that because actually it's funny, like that word effortless is an interesting one when it comes up in reviews and it usually comes up to with comedies, but you could say this about this film as well. But the word effortless is to suggest that like you're making it seem effortless. In reality, it's really difficult to do. Yeah. And you tell me something that I was like recently about, you did a Q&A where the mod, uh, um, forgive me if this is wrong, if then correct me, <laughs> yeah. but the moderator said, oh, I'm not sure if I should say this. But I found your film very entertaining. And I was like, oh, what the, why the fuck are we here otherwise? Am I wrong? Is that what they said? He was like, yeah, I don't want to offend you. <laughs> I mean, that's the highest compliment, isn't it? Uh, I think so, yeah. It was in the context of like awards movies, I think. And so he didn't want to seem, but, but just the fact that the word entertaining is, is, could be conceived as a put down, I think. Uh, yes, I think. Funnier than tar. <laughs> um, talk about like, in, in that thing of like, talking about being eff- seeming effortless and it seems like you're having such a ball, but also this movie for directors in the audience, like it involves something which is like the bugbear of any day of shooting. And I've done movies like this where everybody dreads the dinner table scene <laughs> because you've got eight characters around a table, but that doesn't mean eight shots. That means like 32 shots covering all the angles. And of course, the nature of this movie where it's an ensemble it's like that's it that is a puzzle in itself so talk about then because i've done this before and it's always really interesting especially when you have an ensemble who might have different energies peaking at different times talk about shooting those scenes and how to schedule them yeah yeah i mean um and honestly the dinner table scene thing is is one thing but at least then everybody is in a fixed position um the the much much more complicated challenge for this film and the, and the place where I really felt like the most growth was um, scenes where it's all eight or nine actors milling about a large space, talking to each other and having a complicated scene. The scene that, um, that, that leads up to uh, the first murder is like a good example of that. And that will, that, that was a, that was a beast. Um, And uh, I mean, I was, I was lucky in that, with these actors, I didn't really have anyone who was delicate either way in terms of peaking early or this and that. And, and, and inevitably, though, the way that you would end up scheduling it, because there, even if there are like eight people around in the scene and everyone has their little bits they put in and reactions – Inevitably, the scene rotates around. You know, there's there's a line that happens between like two people or three people, and then the handoff to these two people. So inevitably, you'll shoot your kind of orchestrated shots that follows the main action and covers the main um, thread of the scene. But then at the end of the day, you would just have to grind through the reaction shots, and the actors were in, incredibly patient and game for it. And and we would. Um, if we had three cameras, we would use them. We would sometimes um, set up like three cameras at once on different singles and, and play the action out and get just try and get them done as quickly as possible. Um, and uh, it, just because with something like this, you need those reaction shots. So, so um, yeah. So is that the scene? There's usually like a scene in the schedule which is like feels like that's Everest. Yeah. And like if I can get through that. Well, then, it was um, yeah. um, then I, I feel like I'm, you know, kind of like not plain sailing, but like I've. So would that be the the, the lead up to the first murder? Would be that? No, um, that scene was the what we call the disruptor scene, where they're all sitting by the pool after in that kind of you know sitting sitting area, yeah. and it's when several things happen. It's when you kind of have the birdie uh, interaction with the thing about the Halloween costume, and then Miles holds court and gives his disruptor speech. And then Andy breaks it up and does her slow clap, like, you know, um, breaking everybody's motives down. And we had, it's a, it was like a 10 page scene. It was all of the actors and we had one day in the schedule to do it. So we had three cameras and I just did a lot of preparing and let all the actors know. So everybody was just locked in and, um, and also it's a daytime scene. So we, uh, you know, we were limited to daylight hours. Um, and that was like a, we get that last shot and the whole crew starts cheering <laughs> type, 
Dave Day, that was the Everest that we had to climb, but it was it was fun. And with something like that, I mean, with that cast, I mean, how much do you get to rehearse and stage it before a shooting day? Do you yeah. get to do any of that, or is it difficult to wrangle the ensemble? We had them around, but I didn't use the rehearsals for, for staging. I, I, I used the rehearsals to get together, like... I like to work. I, I, I generally don't do read throughs. I don't find them very useful. Um, but what I will do is get together like groups of two or three of the actors and work out some of the bigger scenes. I and mean, usually it's just sitting like this with them and, and more or less talking through the scene. You know, we'll say it out loud a few times, but really it's just to see, make sure they completely understand sort of the, the through line of it and what the scene is about. Um, and to ask me questions they have about it. Um, so it's, it's less about getting uh, it on its feet and really staging it. It's more about kind of making making sure everyone understands it. Yeah, your table reads are a weird thing because sometimes they're useful, but also if it's a big cast and it's a big table, oh, people have to project more than they will in the film. Yeah. Have you, it, do you do them? Do you do I have, and sometimes wow. it's been good, and sometimes it's like backfired. Because sometimes, I won't say who, but like somebody had to do a much bigger performance to project than they're going to in the film in close-up. Yeah. And then it just doesn't seem right, and then everybody has a panic, and it's like, no, no he's not going to do that in the See, film. See, that's wild, See, I though. I he, I already narrowed it down. <laughs> <laughs> that's wild, though, because I feel like, especially with your, like what drives me insane about table reads is, it's just you, all of the tools that are going to go into staging it and getting it right and then cutting it and making it like tick and work. You don't have access. Like your movies are so tightly controlled through all of your filmmaking. The notion that it's everyone just sitting around reading it and you have no control over. I don't know. Like, like, do you find the translation actually like, what about them? Do you find, do you find useful? I think this is not about me. Um, but I think, Sometimes it's helpful in terms of there was one particular thing. As is, we'll come back to Ryan in a second. But no, there was no, one no, thing. no. Uh, uh-uh, buddy, sorry. I flip, I've done the like, flip. I flipped it. Like people were not on board with some people higher up were not completely convinced about Nick Frost in Shaun of the Dead. Oh well. They right. just were thinking like this is the funniest part of the film. Can we get somebody bigger? Right. And it wasn't until we did the table read that he won that argument. Because people were like. Yes, of course. Yes. Yeah. Like, that, that so makes you sense, sort of need yeah. that as a sort of political thing. It's like, yes, this yeah. is the guy. Right. See? So sometimes Which I, says, I didn't have to do that with Daniel, no. Daniel Craig. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. Who's this Edward Norton guy? <laughs> <laughs> it is. A, it has another actor, though. I mean, Edward Norton is brilliant, but Edward Norton seems like he's having a lot of fun in this movie. He and is. I don't know when I last saw Edward Norton having that much fun in a movie. He death seems to like he's Smucci. having a fucking blast. Yeah, I'm a big Death to Smoochie fan. In that, in there, <laughs> That's yeah. like 25 years ago. <laughs> wow, you're right. Yeah. Um, yeah, he Edward had a lot of fun doing this. I, and I love, I don't know, I think he's hilarious in Fight Club. I think Fight Club's a very funny movie too. But uh, more in the tar mode of funny than than this mode of funny. But yeah, it, uh, um, he... Man, he had a lot, a lot of fun doing this. And I felt really privileged. Yeah, he doesn't, um, he's not in a ton of stuff these days. So I felt really lucky to get to work with him. Yeah. Just to go back to blocking, talk about working with Steve Yedlin, who, am I right in thinking, has done all of your films since? All of them. You were teenagers together? When did you start making films together? Yeah, I met Steve on a student film set. I was a freshman um, in college and he was still a senior in high school. And he was basically running the camera department on the film set. And, and I was so useless that when they, this is true, when they ran out of sandbags, they would ask me to sit on C-stand bases to hold it down. Um, so Steve took pity on me and, and showed me how to load an airy and we were, became friends. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, that's, what's great is you've gone through from doing brick, which is a very low budget film to making some of the biggest films, you know, this, uh, like, uh, a Star Wars and like but also you've been loyal to a lot of the people that you have worked with over the years which is amazing because also that doesn't often happen yeah I mean <coughs> excuse me yeah um, yeah I mean Steve and also Nathan Johnson my composer who he's my cousin we've been making movies together since we were 10 and and Ron Bergman my producer worked together since I mean I will say though typically kind of the, the cliche is you know you you make your first movie with like your DP who's your buddy and then you get a lot more money for the second movie and they want to hire someone more experienced. I 
was never faced with that because Steve had actually been working long before I got my first movie made. So he was much more experienced than me. So with our second movie, it was like, oh, wow, we can get them. It was more that than so, um, which, which was a lucky break. Having a core team, uh, and I have a lot of people that I've worked with since TV days, and it just, you know, what you're gaining is just like just the shorthand oh my God. and the speed. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, to it, you know, to be out in Greece with all of those actors and a completely new crew would not be much fun for you necessarily. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And and having that, like you said, the shorthand, but also the the degree of kind of um, of comfort, I guess, which which hopefully enables you to kind of take bigger swings. I think you know, it gives you a firmer base to stand on, so you can reach further. You know, um, but yeah, 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 and. Uh, Okay, we are going to throw it open to you guys. Oh, yeah. And please uh, preface any question with who your favorite Poirot is. Oh, my God. <laughs> no, let's do, do this. Do <laughs> no, no, please do. do um, let's go. You had your hand up first with the red shirt. Yeah, you. Yeah. Thanks. Peter Ustinov. Um, I just wanted to say I, I really liked the... Um, well, I love the film, but nice the production point. design and the costume design, there's a lot of texture and a lot of pattern, um, obviously with Miles' box and also his his uh, lair at the end, mm. but also just things like um, uh, Blanc's apartment as well. They're all, they're, there's a lot of, of um, yeah, texture and, and pattern on the screen throughout yeah. of a different variety. And I'm wondering, what's your process with that? Because it was so controlled and it worked so well. Yeah. Well, my production designer, Rick Heinrich, who I worked with on The Last Jedi, Rick, um, he came up working with Tim Burton and has done a lot of uh, Burton's movies. And Rick is incredibly good at doing very nuanced character-based design on a grand, grand scale, which is exactly what we needed for this. And so it was a process of having lots of conversations about Miles, about kind of his head about what's funny about him, about like the, what makes him tick. And then Rick translating that to this, you know, like for example, the atrium set, which has like the dining room with the Kanye mural and the middle part with the Mona Lisa and all the horrible glass plinths. Um, and then kind of the weird seventies orgy pit, like hangout area on the left. Um, and the whole thing kind of, you walked onto that set and it just, it felt like a thousand uh, interior decorator clowns vomited. It was like this melange of all this stuff that made no sense. And then you start pointing the camera at it and it all makes total sense as the inside of Miles Braun's head. And that that's kind of Rick's magic. And Jenny Egan, who's our costume designer, um, you know, similarly, it's, it's, I give, I sometimes have very specific cues for her, but more often, I want to kind of give her a description of, of, you know, the base of all these characters. And then I want her to work with the actors and really discover it. I mean, Daniel brought her the references of Jacques Tati and um, Cary Grant into Catch a Thief. And if you look at the character, you can kind of see in the costume, he's an exact split between those two. He's got the Tati hat and he's doing a lot of kind of the physical humor of Monsieur Hulo. Um, but he has the high-waisted pants of Cary that you have to be either – Daniel Craig or Cary Grant to pull off. Um, but, uh, yeah. And, and so yeah, my process is hiring geniuses like Rick Heinrich and Jenny Egan, I guess is what I'm saying. Also his swimming costume is ironically close to Sean Connery's Terry jumpsuit in Goldfinger. That's true. Only like Daniel Craig and Sean Connery could pull off before we move on. Like Miles Braun gets things wrong in the film and it suddenly hit me like a flash. And I'm sure people in the audience probably thought Edgar's an idiot. It wasn't John Suchet. It was David Suchet was Poirot. I'm so sorry. This is the John big Suchet. twist at the end. It was a twist <laughs> at the end. So David Suchet, I apologize. Uh, impossible. Uh, who's next? Uh, right in the middle there. Hi. Congratulations on the movie. Um, I was just curious if you could talk a bit more about your um, rehearsal process. Mm -hmm. uh, you were saying that mostly you figure out scenes with actor, but then... What do you do when you're faced with complicated scenes as the one we saw in this movie? Do you just block them on the day or hmm. is there a special process for those? Yeah, so the rehearsal time that I have with the actors is largely about the um, 
dramatic content of the scene and kind of running through it and making sure they understand the shape of it. It's not so much about the blocking or staging because I, I don't find it very useful to do that until we're actually on the set. So um, what I'll do specific uh, with a very complicated sequence in particular um, I will – the storyboarding process for me is, is much more about figuring out the blocking than it is figuring out the shots. Um, although it is the shots, for me, it's largely about at that point when I'm storyboarding, we've designed the sets. And so I can actually get my head around an idea for how to block everybody in the frame. And this has been a, a big um, – kind of learning curve for me. I think when I was, was starting to make movies, I was thinking about shots, 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 and thinking about cool shots and the camera. And um, making these movies has really switched my brain over to thinking about staging and thinking about blocking. And um, so I went and I'll, I'll study. I mean, I think Spielberg is the modern master of, of blocking and the masterful wonders he does where you don't even he doesn't it doesn't get the same attention as big flashy wonders in other movies because they're so deft and beautifully done and the five actors will like change positions in a way that feels totally natural and the camera will move three feet and suddenly you're looking at a completely different shape that draws your eye to a completely different dynamic in the scene um so that's that's the kind of stuff that I would go back and look at and the story, once I get, so I storyboard it, I have a notion of what the blocking is. We show up on set in the morning and the first thing you do is a blocking rehearsal, like you guys know with the actors and I'll kind of walk them through that. And, um, but I'll always leave room for, here's what I'm thinking. Here's what it's in my head. We'll try playing the scene that way. And then I'll kind of check in with everyone. First of all, I'll see if anything feels funky and then I'll check in with everyone and just make sure that all makes sense to them. And if it doesn't, we'll adjust. And then if we adjust the blocking, then I'll work with Steve and we'll adjust what the shots are for the blocking. But, um, so yeah, essentially in the morning we put it on its feet, we try out what I've planned. And if it doesn't work, we, we make adjustments from there. It's interesting with Spielberg because as one of the, you know, the most successful directors, he also, he never stopped being a TV director in the sense of like how to get through you know, like a number of pages in one shot. Yeah. How to how to shoot Jewel in twelve days? Columbo. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the opening shot of the, his first Columbo episode. Oh my like god! The incredible thing Coming through the window. Boulevard. <sighs> yeah. Did you know that Steven Spielberg directed the first episode of Columbo? Yes, they do. Yeah. Okay. It was it was like the second. It was that there was a pilot of Columbo, but then yeah 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 yeah. I'm getting. Who specific. is next? Right here. You had your hand up first. Yeah, you got it. yeah yeah. Um, thank you, first of all. Great film. Really enjoyed it. Thanks, man. Um, obviously, with something like this that's so um, character-driven, when it comes to writing it, do you first of all sort of nail your characters and then figure out the journey they're going to go on? Or have you already got, you go start with the plot and then you build up the characters around the story? Yeah. Yeah, it's the second one for me. I always start with structure and, I mean, plot is... Uh, it is plot, but it feels – I feel like I want to use the word story instead of plot because plot to me is kind of a little more mechanical, whereas story encompasses the emotional arc that I want the audience to go on. It encompasses the um, the themes of the movie and how that works. To me, structure and, and story is what I figure out at first, and that usually in a movie like this involves kind of um, proxies at least for – even if I don't know who the characters are, I'm like, okay, the killer – the protagonist, like the detective, I have like, um, you know, the major players at least like roughed in. But then with everybody else, um, to me, what I'm looking for is to execute that story to the most effective ending possible. So I get that aim in sight and then I, I work out who the characters are based on the needs of that story. For, for, for what the thing needs. Um, it's not a very romantic way of putting it, I guess. But I find it much more effective than coming up with a bunch of characters and then figuring out, you know, where it all goes. Um, let's go right at the back there in the corner. Yeah, there you go. Cool. Hi, guys. Thank you very much. It's a great movie. Really enjoyed that. Thanks. And um, I think um, for... You're one of the, like for, well, you're one of my favorites in terms of the of setups and payoffs. 
and like that whenever you see them there always seems to be this like incredible joy of having you know these different payoffs whether it's only visual whether it's all you know audible payoffs or you know then an, an audible that's set up by a visual payoff and i just wonder how how much are you thinking about that when you're when you're writing and is there a favorite one that you have in glass onion hmm. also david Suchet. <laughs> there you go uh no, john Suchet. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, well, thanks, first of all. But uh, yeah, I, that, that's something that, and I think, you know, uh, writing-wise, I, I will spend the first 90% of the process um, working in small notebooks. Uh, I, I don't type script pages until the very, very end of the, like if I spend nine months writing a script, eight of those months will be diagramming the story, maybe sketching some scenes longhand, but largely just thinking about the shape and structure of the whole thing. And that allows me to keep the whole thing liquid in my head and to um, and to think about without getting lost in the soup of having 120 script pages to just look at one page of a moleskin notebook, see the full arc and think, OK, if I want this effect here, that means I need to land something as early as I can that sets that up. Um, I find that very useful. Um, uh and I've also, I mean, this this film is probably more of a flat-out comedy than the first one. That's one thing I've I, I also kind of found is is if you can land a setup in a joke, um, it's tremendously useful. I mean, first of all, because it's entertaining, but also because it implies the purpose of that information is to get a laugh from the audience as opposed to the audience tagging that as, oh, that's going to pay off later. So um, so a lot of the most important stuff in here I try and do as like a, a, a throwaway joke. I do, I was very, <coughs> I guess I'm very, um, I don't know, I, 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 I do really enjoy the, uh, the malaprop plants just because I know for myself and probably a lot of people in the audience, it just starts to eat at you over the course of it. And it feels like it, I just like the idea that it feels very good when this thing that you think is like loose ends throughout it ends up being kind of like a, an actual comes together and is called out for you at the end um, for the word Nazis like me in the audience. Yeah. What is what what is the what does the three act structure look like in the Moleskin? Is it like the forty index cards, or is it like a sort yeah. of long? No, it's an arc. I'll draw an arc, and then I'll do little cross hatches and break it into sequences. I used to really tie myself to the three act structure. I've tried to get away from that. I've found that that was making my scripts very long because I would. You know, if I have three acts and like the midpoint of the second act, I would come up with story to fill those out and my script would be too long at the end. So I've tried to hopefully kind of internalize what the three act structure is for, which is just a way to lash yourself to the mast of keeping things moving and interesting for the audience um, like this. I actually couldn't tell you how many acts you, uh, Glass Onion is because it has the structure that's based around the two halves. That was kind of the whole starting point is can you split the movie in half, do the first half, and then redo it in the second half and maintain the audience's interest. So um, I would have to go back in my notebooks to actually tell you how many acts, strictly speaking, it is. You know, uh, We haven't had anybody from this side of the room. Let's have a look. Mm. You. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Ustinov. Yes, um, my man. <laughs> um, Nobody's picked Finney yet. Interesting. Loved him too, but Ustinov. <laughs> um, so, loved the movie. Thank you so much. Really entertaining. Um, so, if, <laughs> so, if you could uh, just tell us a little bit about casting. So when you were writing, were you thinking of these actors or uh, when did that whole thing come about? In terms of yeah, I, tr I try not to. I've learned to not try and think of actors when I'm, when I'm writing the scripts for a couple of reasons. First, because if you have someone implanted deeply in your head and then you end up not able to get them for whatever reason, then you, you have a broken heart. Um, but also because... If I'm writing, thinking of an actor, what I'm really doing is writing, think of a, thinking of a performance I like that actor has given, and that doesn't seem very fair to the actor in my head. So I, I like to 
just kind of write to the needs of the story and, and create with as blank a slate as possible kind of this character in my head. Or I'll think of somebody who's not an actor. It's just somebody I know in life and just if I need a model. Um, and then I get together with my casting director, Mary Vernu, who I've worked with for years and years. And and we'll talk – it's a very kind of – you know, it's similar to what I described with Jenny Egan or with Rick Heinrich. I'll describe the characters to Mary and she'll try and get inside their heads and kind of – I'll talk through the characteristics I think are interesting about them. And then um, and then she'll go and see who's available and put together lists and say we'll talk through the options basically. So, um, you know, it's just it's, – it's probably the same process everyone goes through, but it's just – it is that process, you know. And, they, and then often the surprises will be – actually, really quick, the Dave Bautista – the character Duke that Dave Bautista plays is actually a good example. I wrote that imagining um, like a skinny white dude in the role, imagining somebody who was – um, you know, pretending to be this big macho dude who was punching above his weight class. And when Mary suggested Bautista, it, I was just like, oh my God, that's fantastic because Dave, I mean, first of all, I think he has untapped just like reservoirs of talent as an actor. I'm, I'm just dying someday for somebody like PTA to give Dave a real part and look like a genius. I think he's a really fantastic, soulful actor, but he has a vulnerability to him that, um, that kind of belies his, his, his physical presence. And so I got very excited about that for instance. So sometimes I describe what I want to marry and then it's her zigging instead of zagging. And then that's kind of the genius of, of how it all comes together, you know? Yeah. It's very hypnotic looking at the back of Dave Batista's head as well. I know you can get lost in I that know, maze. It's like the secret of, of uh, it life is, is in it there. It is in there, man. I've been there. I've seen it. I've come back from the mountain. <laughs> to me, uh, to, to follow up with your question, the real surprise in this for me, because obviously I've seen her in other things, I'm a big fan of her as an as a artist, a musical artist, but Janelle Monet was a big surprise because she essentially, without getting too much away, uh, you know, has two parts, and I thought she was... That gives so much away. Can we... Okay. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. alert. Anyone, anyone listening to the, the podcast that we're doing, recording right now. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, sorry. But I, you know, sort of, she, to me, like, sort of showed, like, real kind of, like, yeah. even more, like, talent than I thought she already had, which was a lot. Talking about working she, with her. she worked her ass off on this part. Yeah, this this part is a high degree of difficulty, and um, I get I guess, um, and we we read several different incredible actors for that part. A lot of whom I would give my left arm to work with, but Janelle just kind of drew me, and she I'm so I can't imagine anyone else playing it now. And she um, I I was a fan of Janelle's music, and I feel kind of similar to. Bowie, she's a real storyteller through her music and her albums, through her album, she creates characters, she creates narratives. And that's kind of what this part required is somebody who was going to um, think about the, the shape of the whole thing and how to work in the different aspects of this character throughout, throughout the whole thing. Yeah. Thank you. I just wanted to ask, as a sculptor, I love like really like details in films and I noticed like... I just wanted to say thanks for the detail of the rundown sole of the shoe of Brady. It just like looked amazing and <laughs> it kind of gave her kind of like a real no, character. Nice. But what I wanted to, I was curious about the, um, the dome on the building. I guess you found that the building in Greece and then added it, but was it added in studio, like in post, like how was that done? Yeah, the actual glass onion thing. Yeah. So yeah, we found, um, the reason we went to Greece is we found this, the structure, not including any of the glass stuff, that's this place at the Amanzoa Resort in Greece called uh, Villa 20 that's like this structure, this cluster of villas that they rent out to billionaires. It's a ridiculous place. It's crazy. It's beautiful. But um, but it's also um, has like a weird vibe. It almost has like a like last year in Marienbad type vibe when you wander through there. Everything is so designed and so meticulous. It kind of has a creepiness to it also. Um, but And then uh, Rick Heinrich designed the glass onion and that was a CG element that we added up top. But then the inside of that structure, the like Miles's office, that was a physical build. We built that in Belgrade on a stage, including all the glass around it. And I think they actually prefabricated all of it 
here, I believe, in the UK and shipped it to Belgrade and put it together like a Lego set, basically, in Belgrade. It was an insane set. It was beautiful. And that, um, we called it like the in- infinity cube, but like that, that thing in the center that has all the, li- that's, uh, I know there's one in Palm Springs. I'm not sure. It's actually an artist who creates those. And that's a practical thing. We just pointed the camera at that thing. That's not a CG effect. Um, it's single, it's one way mirrors, uh, all around it and just neon lights in the inside. And you look into it and it creates this infinite depth. Um, you can probably do a little Googling and find the artist, but, um, yeah, that was extraordinary. Where's the glass onion now? Uh, you mean the the whole the big? One? The big <laughs> well, you want it? No, I'll be shipped to your house this after the uh, this, this is my Christmas present to you. <laughs> one thing I wanted to ask last night. I know you've been asked a lot a, a lot about this on the tour, but obviously the film premieres on Netflix on Christmas Day, and you know we've been fortunate tonight, and I've been fortunate twice to see it with an audience. It came out at the cinemas for a week, and I think. In the States, on 650 screens only in a week, I think outgrossed most of the other big sort of um, awards movies of the year. How, how do you feel about it now in terms of the way that people are consuming the movie? I mean, I, you know, I, I felt that week was incredible, first of all. The theaters were packed. I went around to a lot of them. I did like Q&As, but also I just sit in the back of the theater and just like soak up the reaction. And it just was absolutely magical and um i mean it's complicated i i i netflix have been fantastic partners in this and i um i'm very grateful they did legitimately step outside of their comfort zone and what they did because it's not just a week in theaters and 650 screens it's what screens they were on they they for the first time reached across the aisle and made deals with the major distributors in the u.s so we were on amc screens and cinemark and um, you know, uh, it, it, and it, it, landmark, it was, it was all like the big one. So, which, which was a big step forward for them. And they also put money and muscle behind promoting the release, which they've never really done with a theatrical release. Um, but I also, I want more, like I want my goal with all of this is, and we did very well in cinemas. I want it to do great when it comes on the service so we can show that those two things are not in opposition to each other. It seems so simple and obvious to me, but the notion that with the right movie that connects with audiences that a successful theatrical release just increases its value when it gets to streaming and we can kind of etch away at this weird kind of, you know, dichotomy of of theatrical versus streaming and see it as two things that can support each other. Um because I love I don't know, man, it's I know that most people will discover it at home. I the reality is I probably watched Death on the Nile with Houston off for the first time in front of the TV with my whole family. I think it's great. I can't wait for this to be on Netflix for people to watch it with their watch it at home. But I also I you know these movies are engineered to be seen with a big crowd and enjoyed like that also. So um, so I'm hoping I'm happy with what we got. I want more. I'm hoping we can push it further and further and uh, um, you know bring. Uh, streaming and theatrical holding hands across America. What's the, what's the first song title that comes into your head right now? <laughs> well, now Glass Onion, because we've been talking about it for a fucking hour, so I apologize. Just think of but, any yeah. other song. Any other song? Uh, after, after what we paid to license Glass Onion, I'm thinking <laughs> of maybe a nice Stephen Foster song, something in the public domain. Something. <laughs> Because I know what you're fishing for. <laughs> yeah, don't go on You give comments. me something. You, he's a jolly good fellow. Yeah, that, would be, that would be lovely. There you go. It's probably domain. You give me. You're Save the, yourself 250. You're yeah. the needle drop guy. You tell me. What's 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 the first song in your head? But he's a jolly good fellow. Well, I mean, I'm all for that. Done. Happy birthday. Give the Hill Sisters a Happy bunch of birthday money. is a really good idea. That would be a good happy birthday to me. But yeah. the Stevie Wonder one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> listen, we have to like let's thank the amazing Ryan Johnson. Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much for coming. Everybody have a lovely holiday, and uh, thank you for coming out. And uh, God bless. Thank Thanks you very much. much. Thank you. This podcast was recorded at a Directors UK member event. You can hear more episodes of the Directors UK podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or your favorite podcatcher. Directors UK is a professional association for film and TV directors with over 7,500 members. Find out more about us at directors.uk.com.